0: Welcome to Arrested DevOps, episode 41, Podcast Me Maybe. I'm your co-host, Matt Stratton, at Matt Stratton on Twitter.
1: I'm your co-host, Trevor Hess, at Trevor G. Hess on Twitter.
2: And I'm your co-host, Bridget Crumhout at Bridget Crumhout on Twitter.
1: Arrested DevOps is brought to you by Tenth Magnitude, a cloud services company that figures if you're listening to this podcast, you must be pretty cool. You can find out about joining our cloud services team at ArrestedDevOps.com slash Tenth Magnitude.
0: This episode is also sponsored by PagerDuty. PagerDuty eliminates the noise, chaos, and manual processes across the entire incident lifecycle to decrease resolution time. PagerDuty is trusted by companies like Etsy, Nike, and GitHub. To sign up for a free 14-day trial, visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash PagerDuty. So as we've promised in the past, but nobody probably remembers, uh, if you write a review on the iTunes store at ArrestedDevOps.com slash iTunes, we will read it on the air so I was looking this today and I saw we had one from August 3rd. So this is from the user IT Fargo who gave us 5 stars and says excited about the ops. Says sadly I only just now found this podcast. As I'm looking to move from my more managery ops role to a devops type role and get dirty with the systems again, this podcast is getting me excited for everything that's out there. I don't get to play with yet <laughs> for a job anyway. Excellent guests, great hosts. The topics are spot on. And it's helping me lose weight by making me want to take walks just to listen to the episodes. Thanks, IT Fargo.
1: Today we're catching up with Kyle Kingsbury, whose research on failure in distributed systems is the stuff of legend, or perhaps nightmares, depending on exactly what data stores you're supporting in production. Kyle, will you tell us a little bit about what brought you to this very moment?
3: Sure. So I've been running uh, distributed systems in production for a few years now, and a lot of them are subject to interesting failure. You might not predict. Um, so Jepsen is an effort to systematically verify how distributed systems fail, and take footage of them doing this in slow motion. Share the analyses with public.
2: Now that's that's actually great that you're starting with Jepsen, Kyle, because you know a longtime reader slash fan, um, first time podcast interviewer. Uh, can you give us a little bit of a background about the Jepsen tool that, of course, you developed, uh, starting with? Why is it called Jepsen?
3: Well, there's that, that great song, you know, uh, Call Me Maybe by Carly Rae Jepson. And it's, it's all about miscommunication and not knowing if the uh, the cute boy across the street likes you or not, or if you got your note, Maybe he likes your, your friend instead. So this is basically what computers are doing all the time, um, at least in my in my head. You send a message off to a database, and maybe it got it, maybe it didn't, and there's all this confusion. I named it Jepson and made a bunch of silly pop song references inside the code base and in the in blog posts.
0: I, I need to give a quick little double shout-out. Uh, apparently, listener IT Fargo is listening to us live because he just tweeted at us. Thank you. So there's your second shout-out. So see, leave us reviews. We will make you internet famous. All right, back to the topic at hand.
2: So uh, Kyle, when you first started working on Jepsen, what made you decide to, to make an actual tool as opposed to you know just writing ranty tweets or blog posts or tearing your hair out or you know just doing a lot of squats or in the Smith Smith
3: cage or whatever. Um, So I did all those things first and wanted to escalate to something that would be a little more systematic. Um, People in the distributed systems literature have talked about the sort of theoretical bounds on computer system safety. But those haven't always been translated into practice. And it's not always clear, like, does a theoretical error correspond to a real failure that we should care about? Is it transient? Are we gonna lose a few seconds, a few months worth of data? I wanted to quantify the errors um, as best I could and try to understand what are the pragmatic implications and then talk about those theoretical limits in ways that people like me who aren't as theoretically
0: inclined can understand. So is that kind of putting, almost assigning value to, to those, those things and, and weighting them? Is that in my kind of layman's terms, am I reading that correct? I look at rule
3: in Jepsen as being sort of an interpreter, trying to the the practice where I come from of, of you know run distributed systems production, bridging that to the distributed systems theory and literature, and trying to figure out how to make those ideas intelligible. And there's another side which is giving feedback to the literature people, and you know hopefully we'll get better theory out of it as well.
2: Now I know that I mean I've talked to. People like um, at OSCON, I was in a Birds of a Feather session with the RethinkDB people, and they were talking about taking the Jepson suite and running it against their database. Um, do you get a lot of people telling you that they're actually taking this tool and trying it out themselves against their actual database that they're developing? Like you're saying you're reaching out to the theory community, but how about these practitioners?
3: Most of what I do is back and forth with the, the vendors and practitioners And I think there are probably, I don't know, six to 10 sort of people or teams who are actively using Jetson in some capacity. Um, It's not always oftentimes they they run it internally. Maybe they get one result and abandon it. Maybe they use it continuously. I don't get a whole lot of feedback. I know there's a few students using it for research projects. There are companies like RethinkDB and DataStax that use it to test uh, the safety of their systems. And then I'm continuing to pump out new analyses each uh, three months or so.
2: How, I mean, other than, you know, hey, MongoDB, Elasticsearch, these are things a lot of people are talking about. I'll, I'll uh, put that one through the Jepsen ringer. Like, how do you decide which ones you're going to go after next?
3: Uh, I like interesting things. Um, I, I do test Stripe as well for our own systems. And oftentimes, those are more particular, they're not, if there's no generalizable lesson, I don't really want to write about it. So I want to choose things that will be, either they're widely deployed and so the impact is high, or they have a particularly interesting failure mode to talk about, or maybe they've got really egregious marketing, and I think like they need to be you know sort of um, brought to task for that. There's there's a number of sort of avenues that you, you could take on post down. I think pragmatically it's it's a, a mixture of trying to be educational for users, trying to help improve the quality of software by reporting bugs, um, and then helping people make better evaluation decisions about what databases should use, which which ones can provide
0: the invariance that I need. What things have surprised you? There's
3: just endless ways for things to fail. (laughs) I love it. Like today, uh, I was working with Kronos and Mesos, and one of the interesting design choices that they make is that when um, a network service becomes unavailable, like they they use Zookeeper. So when Zookeeper's connection to Kronos is lost, Kronos will simply uh, give up on life and shoot itself in the head. it doesn't try to reconnect it doesn't try to, to wait for a bit instead it just says well this is the end of the world everything is terrible and and that's that's game over so i was like well this is unusual because most software i've worked with typically like it'll do a background reconnection and then operations will proceed um, because typically some parts of the software will keep working even though maybe writes will fail you could still service reads maybe you could still offer operational metrics or logging or something and they were saying well we have to do this for safety reasons we have to shut down or else it would be unsafe I was like, oh, okay, so what do you do to restore? And like, oh, well, you automatically restart the process. I'm like, all right, so it's unsafe for it to run, but it's also unsafe for it to be stopped. So we should automatically restart it so that it will stop again. And it's this really unusual, bizarre things happen. That's, that's today's. But it just, the list goes on and on. Like, uh, NeoDB claimed to be the cap theorem, and the way they did it was by not doing any operations during a network failure. They would just buffer everything in RAM. Cassandra had a transactional system that would deadlock hard, and even when that patch was fixed, or that that bug was fixed, they would uh, lose transactions. <laughs> React has this very strong, eventually consistent model for doing you know, conflict resolution, which is not enabled by default. So the default uh, settings will lose phenomenal amounts of data during common use cases.
1: So uh, what's next for Jepson?
3: Um, doing a talk in Berlin at Distributed Matters and that's going to be, I think, like September, maybe 19th-ish. And I'm going to present probably three new systems. One of which will be Kronos. And then I am I want to look at RethinkDB and maybe like a MySQL cluster or something. Like that. I'll have to get that research going here in the next few weeks. I've got the Kronos post underway now, and I've got about a week and a half each for the two other databases. So it's going to be a little tight.
2: This seems to keep you really busy. Now, I know you're working for Stripe. Can you kind of contextualize how this research relates to you working for Stripe, if at all?
3: (laughs) Yeah, so initially I did Jepson as a free time project. And I I would just go home every night and hack on this thing for six hours. And my boyfriend would look at me from the bed and go, why aren't you cuddling? And There's important things on the internet to fix. Some distributed data stores
2: on the internet are wrong.
3: (laughs) Pretty much. It's like arguing with internet commenters, only it's like the things that store your data. So, of course, you automate that process. Now, so, I, I did this in my free time, and I was giving all the talks in my free time, and I, I really enjoyed it. It's, so, like, it's something I feel passionate about. I love breaking things, I love understanding things, and I get to do something of a public service in the process. When Stripe uh, approached me, um, Mark Headland reached out and said, hey, you know, we like the work you're doing. Stripe has uh, captured the flag and a bunch of these other educational processes. Um, or we want to give back to the community, we think that the Jepson research is really important for the community. And we'd all, also like you to internal systems and help give us better assurance. So my job at Stripe now is this combination of public outreach, um, it's sort of an associated halo effect in recruiting. And then also helping us make better technical decisions internally of what tools to use and what databases are safe and putting pressure on our vendors to fix their bugs.
2: I mean that's I think that's awesome because it it kind of it, And speaking of this being great for your recruiting, I mean, we just had Andrew Clay Schaefer on this podcast, and suddenly I'm going to work for him. These two things have nothing to do with each other, (laughs) but I don't know. You may have to try to steal Trevor or something. It's like, hey, Trevor, you want to go work for Stripe?
0: (laughs) We we, we actually did. Bridget is going to Pivotal mostly just to diversify the host lineup to not be so chef-specific. How you
2: know? I'm wearing a chef t-shirt right now.
0: <laughs> oh, me too.
2: <laughs>
0: I, I'm not, and I'm the one that works there. <laughs> oh. I, did, I did tell Bridget that if she ever mentions Bosch, I'm going to bleep it. So.
2: And you know what? I got to tell you, Matt, is apparently a pretty interesting tool. And I'm going to say the word and just double dog dare you to bleep me because i'm pretty sure that it, there's a rider in my non-existent contract that says there will be no bleeping no fucking bleeping of me whatsoever.
0: <laughs> I'll remember that when i send you your non-existent paycheck. I, w- I was just gonna, I'm I'm kind of curious like again where's you know where you're kind of overlaying it with the, the stuff that you're doing and how it uh, overlaps with with Stripe. I mean so how is that actually so since you've been doing that how, what what have you seen be the, the i guess the benefits to the maybe to the project or just even to you, what's, what's changed?
3: The big thing for me was that before I was limited to doing the next weekends and I could only dedicate a few hours and, and then in a the burst of a month, it would take my whole life. You know, my finances would fall apart. My, my relationships, my house would be wrecks. I didn't see my friends. And so now I have an actual life and I get to do all this research. That's really great. So in the first couple months I turned out, Results for Mongo, Elasticsearch, and Air Spike. I gave like eight conference talks in three countries and two continents. Uh, it was a real, a real interesting spring. Um, and now, since I've gotten back, things have calmed down a little bit, and I'm doing more internal analyses, uh, also the performance instrumentation.
2: That that's fantastic. And I should also ask because. You, you actually did a really interesting write-up recently about not wanting to take a conference talk to a specific country um, for specific reasons, and it got me thinking about this intersection between culture and distributed systems. And I think you do a fantastic job of representing yourself as a full person Um, who is not just, you know, Jepson guy cranking out distributed systems research. I was wondering if you want to talk a little bit about how looking at distributed systems and thinking about the intersection with the actual lives we all lead, you know, where that takes you in terms of your thought processes.
3: I'm not sure if I look at it as a matter of intersectionality, because it's not clear to me that, I mean, there's not that many, like, like, gay leather, distributed systems analyst although a lot a lot of distributed <laughs> systems people are I think inherently somewhat masochistic <laughs> um, don't
2: we have to be <laughs>
3: and, and, and I think my role is, as you know sort of systems analyst is like inherently dom top right I'm just beating on until they, they cry and, and they get terrible results um, <laughs> but you know it's all it's all consensual um, we have to have a, a nice conversation in the prelude we set up a safe environment to run in and Uh, journal all the results and report (laughs) things correctly. Hopefully hopefully the way this is done is respectful to the users and to the vendors while not being so polite that nobody takes any notice or or feels levers to change things. Um, I can certainly be overly snarky
0: at times and
3: so I want to try to balance that as best I
0: can without losing any sense of personality. Richard Hintz commented on our Google page about this episode with a question that actually I think plays right into what you just said. Well, maybe not Exactly, because that would be oddly specific. But he said that I read someone claim that Oracle Terms of Service expressly disallow Jepsen type investigation of their products. Is this accurate?
3: Yeah, I've heard it from several people. I haven't actually looked at the TOS myself, but there is there's definitely a clause. I think this was a DP two or something. Uh, don't don't quote me on it. Um, <laughs> there was there's some case where somebody did analysis of a database. And it resulted in like I think some sort of lawsuit or cease and desist or like license change that, you know, they basically changed license and said you cannot do this kind of performance analysis anymore because it reflected poorly on them. So that that does limit what I can do with jepson and I would not at all be surprised if Oracle's terms were that way. Also, I don't have like. I spec'd out a rack system once and was like, oh, I don't have $5.8 million. Dude, I was just going to say, oh, so, you can
0: do that anyway. <laughs> yeah. All that
3: Oftentimes, like, a smaller commercial vendor like Atomic will offer me a license for free for evaluation. That's only happened with Atomic, and I wasn't able to get it running um, in the time I had, so it, it never came to fruition. But I'm really open to doing closed-source stuff as well, especially where it's relevant to a large user base. It tends to be harder to debug, too, and harder to automatically set up because you have to, like deal with licensing keys and figure out how to store the secrets in the repo and all that stuff.
2: I saw you speak at Monitorama in Portland this spring, and you actually weren't talking about Jepson. Um, you were talking about Riemann. So I want to switch gears for a minute and um, ask you to maybe fill our listeners in a little on your Riemann project and uh, what sort of interesting stuff that's led you to learn and think about.
3: So Remon was a, uh, a monitoring system that I built after being a monitoring person for a little while. I was very frustrated with the existing tools of RRD tool and Cacti and Nagios and all oh, these awful PHP programs that I used to maintain. And I, I started to realize that ultimately monitoring tools had all these hacked together scripts and weird components that were specific to your infrastructure. And I started to think more and more that what you needed was a normalized way to... Describe things that happen in the world, transform them, recombine them, write programs to deal with them, and have some sort of like well packaged, tested way to to do this analysis. That was also it had a simple enough mental model that you could understand it and, and actually work with it. Um, so I wanted something that would be really configurable, highly compositional, with a well defined interface to the outside world so that you could plug in different components to it and hopefully it would interoperate with stuff that, that solved the external problems like storage, visualization, and analysis. I think Riemann, uh, the five or six iterations of Riemann that I, I wrote, and this is the most recent one, um, has been pretty successful in, in meeting those goals. It has a very narrow scope. It does not do everything. It's not distributed, not fault tolerant, but it does give you a really configurable way to do complex monitoring and analysis on short time streams.
2: That's really interesting. Plus, it also gives you some really amazing hand-drawn slides. So, uh, we'll have a link in the show notes to uh, Kyle's slides from Monitorama. But, you know, th- seeing the that what was it the ghost of uh NGINX from API Eight mm-hmm. or whatever was like it was <laughs> epic. I love that. Um, and you wrote most of the, or at least the most current version of it, possibly, but maybe even all of it. I'm not positive. Is Enclosure right?
3: Most of it's closure. Yeah, there's some JavaScript for the front end, and there's um, there's some little demons that are in Ruby, but the the core of the service is in closure.
2: So for people who haven't written any closure, who maybe who are interested but uh, haven't tried it yet, like what led you to want to use closure? Can you talk a little bit about your decision making process there and what you like? So
3: as a as a preface, um, Remon is not designed as you would ordinarily build a consumer product or even an open source product with an audience in mind. Um, I built it explicitly for me, and I'm kind of a weirdo. So uh, it makes a lot of design choices that might be considered uh, by some to be unnatural. Uh, The use of S expressions to represent um, the cascading stream logic, um, higher order function composition, uh, dynamic configuration. There's a lot of syntax tricks that make sense in Lisp, but are weird if you don't know what's going on. So it leads to this kind of ongoing support burden where I'm forced to explain my own bizarre decisions to other people and apologize for them. Um, It's it's a nice kind of purgatory in that way.
2: (laughs) This comes back to the the masochistic tendencies. It's like, why do we do this to ourselves?
3: It's a weird thing. Like I I I'm both thrilled by how popular it became. And I love the idea that I've given something of value to the world at the same time, you know, that, that thing of value that's helping people monitor infrastructure and get better, you know, visibility into their systems also comes with this ongoing support burden. So I've created pain in people's lives. Um, and, of course, I cannot satisfy all of the one-to-one educational requests that people would, you know, want me to provide. So, I, you know, I put, like, anywhere from half an hour to 90 minutes every day into doing remote support on IRC and email and writing docs. And it just never, it never changes. <laughs> you know, the Support load only goes up.
1: Now, um, as
2: a, as the maintainer of an open source project, would you say that someplace that people who want to contribute to open source and maybe don't know where to start could help? Like, is there anything that someone who isn't you could do in yeah, terms of your support?
3: That thing, right? Like if you, if you get in there and you understand the core, like here's why Rihanna works the way it does. And here's, you know, the common things about like how functional composition is misunderstood. People who step up and answer those, those questions in IRC are valuable. And that's, You know, I try to promote as much of that to documentation as I can. But also there's this continual process of seeing where people's pain points are and like asking them, okay, how would you find this in the documentation? Where would you look for this information and try to understand where they got locked up or where they could not find something and streamlining those paths as well as you can. That kind of gardening is a real skill. Um, It takes a good writer, a good communicator, a good listener and somebody who is empathetic. These are DevOps properties, right? Uh, The culture that we have to practice in our jobs. And I'm not very good at that. I'm I trying and getting better, but I think that's a sort of undervalued OSS skill is not writing features or even
0: analyzing pull requests. It's education. I have a question, and maybe I'm going to sound ignorant, but I usually do. That's part of my job sometimes. So in your, your bio, you say, you know, you're author of Jepson, Riemann, and then you say Time Like and Tesser. So what are, I don't I have no idea what those things are, and so don't take that as anything other than my own, Stupid. To know. I
2: have no idea what they are either.
0: <laughs> oh, no, these are just, you know, you need better marketing, Kyle. <laughs> so, so Tesser, actually, I wish I wish
3: Tesser was popular. I'll, I'll talk about that next. Um, Timelike was a weekend experiment. You, you remember back when there was that Holker Fluffle with Rap Genius? and there are queuing issues with dynos oh, and yeah. they wrote yeah, that yeah. Like, scathing review of how the change in the dynos made no sense like you know that's a completely valid thing but let's also look at like what would it take for heroku to build this thing what is heroku's limitation on on optimization how could you so i wrote time like as a as a tool to simulate load balancers and connection pooling and, and latencies and they try to do probabilistic like Monte Carlo sampled simulations of, of latency outcomes in distributed systems but, different components are calling out to each other. It was this like small little toy that turned out to be surprisingly nice for that kind of exploration. I, I think it got it never got used very much. A few people played with it and thought it was neat and used it for mod- mod- modeling some designs. I think actually it got used internally at uh, Heroku for a bit. Tesser is a product I worked on most of last year, and that's a library for doing composition of folds. So where you've got like a big collection of things and you want to kind of fold them up into one compact representation. So maybe you want to take a bunch of numbers and sum them or a bunch of people and find like the distribution of their locations. It's a way to compute those things efficiently in parallel on multiple cores and across multiple machines. And then to compose multiple folds into ones so that you can do all these operations in a single pass over the data and save yourself um, processing time.
0: What what do you think are the things that, you know, you talked about being kind of the interpreter or the go-between between the, the theorist and the literature side and the, the practitioner side. What are the things that you think practitioners miss or, or could learn more about or be smarter about when it comes to, to looking at this type of information?
3: Reading papers is really hard. I come from an academic background. And it still takes me a week or more to get through a paper. And I have to know it's high quality because, you know, maybe you read a, a random result that's not very useful and it takes you all this time to understand it and it's not even relevant. There's a lack of kind of bridging literature that takes practitioners through the seminal papers that are really important in the field. And even then, you may not have to read the papers to get the gist of it. So the work of Jepson has been trying to distill my folky understanding of these mathematical invariants and try to present them in a way that's a little more palatable and, and pragmatic, even though it's not completely correct.
2: It's actually one thing that I really appreciate about your blog posts, which is that you make the material, which can be very dense and mathematical. And, hey, I have a computer science degree, and I am I did an emphasis in theory. So, like, I do actually understand probably not all, but a lot of what you write. But, like, you, I think you... Contextualize the stuff um, that you're writing about, which can be very dense, with a lot of personality and a lot of pop culture flair that gives it all of those hooks for people to try to approach it with some some degree of understanding. I think is I think that's fantastic. Like I think a lot of people are not able to make um, difficult material as accessible as you can. so that's one thing that I really appreciate in the way you present material. Uh, what brought you to framing your analyses that way?
3: I've done some some more sort of dry writing. Uh, you know, you're you're much better educated than I am. Like I have I have one CS course to my to my name. Uh, and it was like a basic data structures thing, right? Um, all of my math is like analysis from physics and has no bearing on this kind of discrete uh, stuff. So. For me, it's also uh, in order to understand it myself, I have to rephrase it and kind of distill it in in the writing. I think that helps because I have a poor memory and it takes me a long time to understand stuff. So by writing from my own weird brain, I can kind of maybe make it intelligible for others, too.
0: That that resonates with me. That's something I, I talk about a lot, which is that idea of of teaching to learn. Right. You know, and so I, you know, always people. You know, I'll tell people on the show now for anybody who's listening. Right. So that exact example that Kyle gave, when you're trying to understand something, making yourself constructed into a blog post or something like that, even if you don't think anybody's going to read it is a super good way to, because it's kind of like teaching it activates different neurons, right. Mm-hmm. Than than hearing it and learning it. And it's a really powerful way to actually learn the stuff. I, randomly going through this sort of vaguely a little bit right now with this talk I'm giving tomorrow, there's a demo portion of it that this whole talk is about a theory that I have that I've not been able to completely prove that the, that this functional thing would work and trying to get it to work. I've learned more about some of Chef's technologies than I've learned in the years and years of using it because I've had to hack on it hard, but I never would have tried to do the things I'm trying to do. If I sat down and said, well, I need to learn more about Chef Analytics or more about Chef Delivery, it was like trying to teach myself or trying to, trying to, well, I'm chewing it in the purposes of trying to then explain it. So I think that's really powerful to be able to do that, and I think more people should.
2: More people should practice conference-driven development.
3: (laughs) To return to what you were thinking about, Bridget, like some of the writing is dry, and I think those articles get a lot less traction. Mostly it's like, oh, like my sort of uh, theory-oriented friends will enjoy it, but um, they don't seem to get the traction on Twitter or on the different news aggregators. And interestingly enough, the most snarky ones are often driven by a desire to piss off the same news aggregators. So hacker news <laughs> is terrible, right? Um, <laughs> well, ha-
2: hacker We all know hacker news is weaponized privilege. So <laughs>
3: it, That's a good way to describe it.
2: Yes, yeah, so someone tweeted that last year and it's just stuck with me.
3: That's, that's a good one. Um, so somebody on hacker news is like, I, just, I wrote this totally serious post. A couple of really quiet, like dry uh, comments in there, but it was almost no jokes. And somebody takes offense at the title being Call Me Maybe. They're like, this is too informal. How do you ever expect to be taken seriously? I'm like, okay, so this is my most you know, sort of like boring writing, and you're mad about the title. Fine. So the next one I write is full of nothing but Barbie gifs taken from popular girls in school, um, which is this. Terrible, deeply problematic, um, like uh, sort of Mean Girls writ large uh, web series, and they did not like that at all. People got so <laughs> mad. And the great bit is like watching them struggle with like, I really want to present this to my boss, but it's too inappropriate. I can't show them these gifs. So can you like make a different version of the article that has all the information but none of the none of the gifs because. it's
2: <laughs> do, do they, are these the are these the people who you're usually saying welcome to my new CTO followers?
3: <laughs> oh yeah, I, I always kind of question because the, the followers stack on when I do one of these posts, and then they, they slowly bleed off as they discover who I actually am, <laughs> which is I, a crazy person. Let's be no, That's an equalist bad word. Um, I am an abs- uh, strange person.
2: I actually I find that I find the entire Kyle. I, I probably shouldn't say the entire Kyle package because that takes us to entirely different places. But the I,
3: is not on the internet, please. Let's. I don't well,
2: right, right. The the angles on your uh, closure control light bulbs, light bulb selfies are uh, very carefully chosen, um, and we need to talk about your light bulbs. Um, and we need to talk about them. Your, you can. And actually, before I even ask you any other questions, <laughs> tell us about this desire to control your light bulbs with closure
3: uh okay so i i um had terrible lighting and when i when i moved which uh which has a
2: really bad effect on one's jockstrap selfies i'm told
3: well so this is this is important right because in order to have uh, great sex one has to have a good scruff profile photo um uh-huh. sure once sure. you meet people in person which is actually where anyway so so there's but this you desire person, to, like, you have to
2: have good lighting that you're meeting the men i, suppose.
3: I and I think we're more successful. Scruff has been very flaky for me. But um anyway, so I, I was like, oh, you know, I wanna I wanna have a good selfie game. So uh, when I when I moved in the house, I was like, all right, I'm gonna set up proper lights. And I originally I was gonna put in like cheap, you know, twenty dollar CFL fixtures or something from Craigslist. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I want like tunable uh, you know, colors, maybe, maybe just like Color temperature, and so then I went to a photography shop. I'm like, well, I'm doing this. I might as well get myself a lamp rig because I've wanted to do uh, like indoor photography for a while, and I've only done landscape. So this would be a nice change. I'll get, and then I talked myself up to a seven thousand dollar lighting rig, which okay. is absurd. As one, knows. Um, I have no setting between like away, <laughs> don't care about it, and must be perfect. It's like when you you're like, oh, I want a spatula, so you go on Amazon and start reading spatula reviews, <laughs> and after like six hours, you're now the expert on spatula fade modes.
0: You I to did that with, example way too quickly, Kyle. You <laughs> did that with cutting
2: boards. It's like right, you get lost in you get lost in like Google, and then you Knives. find the boardsmith. Right, right. But so anyway, so you, what are these? What is this light bulb you ended up buying? Some sort oh, of
3: this light bulb. There's this kit um, called the the Philips Hue which um, I'm sure is a terrible security vulnerability. Like, you can drive to my house and control my lights remotely. And then but you provide, like,
0: some subliminal messaging to you or something like that, you know, with the...
3: Yeah. Well, I want to I hook it up. Well, so anyway, it, it's got, like, an HTTP API for this little... It's like a hardwired bridge that plugs into the, to the router. And then it speaks uh, Zigbee, which is this low-power mesh network, to the light bulbs. So you can set the color, temperature, and brightness of each bulb independently through this HTTP API. Um, and of course, they give you a phone app, but like ideally, what I want to do is write like a genetic algorithm to like evolve lighting schemes to the room, and I like vote it up down and do an you know, experiment. Um, or, or I want to do like uh, programmatic analysis of music, and then try to generate color schemes for like a, a given track listing. So, it, you know, oh, it's going to be like a slow blues track, so let's like lower the lighting and do something more dramatic with reds. That's
1: know. really interesting. Have you seen any of the? Um... <clears throat> There's, I forget what they're called, but they're, you can get those kind of lighting kits for your PC to mm-hmm. go around the edge of your monitor so that while you're playing a game, it'll, it'll match the ambiance of the game.
3: Yeah. So, you know, as it turns out, like, uh, I do photography, and so I've got a calibrator display, and I'm like very, it, that has to be calibrated to a reference light in the room. So I almost always have this very neutral color scheme. <laughs> I know that I've built all the fancy lights. Um, They don't get as much use as I'd hoped.
0: I've been trying to justify the the WeMo light switch that I bought recently. And as both my roommate and my girlfriend pointed out, they're like, your light switch is like all of about five feet away from the bed. So why do you need this to turn the, like, or or, or I said, well, for the ceiling fan. And it's like, I have a ceiling fan. It has a remote. It's the same thing. I'm like, you don't understand. Shut up. (laughs) I need to be able to control the lights in my room with my voice. Oh, really? So I wanted to be able to say, like, computer red alert, and it yeah. would, you know,
3: do the klaxons and light. The-
0: I want that, too. <laughs> well, so this is, I am skipping ahead to my checkout, but one of my checkouts is that I got an Amazon Echo. And I was really, it's really disappointing in one way. It's disappointing in other ways in that it's ridiculous, but I also love it. But you can't assign the, the name of the agent that you're talking to, even though apparently in their commercials you can say computer, lights, and it would turn it on. But you'd have to say Alexa, lights. I haven't hooked the light switch up yet, so I'll report back and and let you know how that works. But you can ask for T. Or a Gray Hot, and Alexa will reply and tell you that she's not a replicator.
2: So yeah, that's that's hilarious.
1: That was my biggest frustration with Google Now
0: is <laughs> you couldn't call it computer. <laughs> yeah,
1: which given the given the like seldom times that Google will accidentally think I'm trying to say Google Now, it's probably <laughs> a good thing it doesn't respond to computer.
2: What I was going to say is I. Uh... Kyle, I do follow you on Twitter, and so I have noticed that you seem to be taking excellent uh, f- uh, photographs with yeah. your exciting new lights. So, <laughs>
0: so you said so it you is... upped the selfie game, in other words.
3: Oh, yeah. So the selfie, the selfie game uh, has been upped. I, I wound up – there's, like, this random open source project, of course, that hooks up your DSLR's USB port to, like, a little UDP server, and then that can talk to the Wi-Fi bridge – we could talk to an app on your phone, so you can get like, a remote shutter with a preview display and everything. So my selfies are actually now like DSLR run via this computer bridge, and it's out of control. The AB testing, however, indicates that it's it's doing its job. So
2: <laughs> that is, that is you got the
0: data, right? You know, you can't argue with data.
2: Uh, so I, I do want to wanna ask you about something a little bit squishier and maybe not as easy to AB test, but.
3: I, I'm joking, by the way, I don't actually AB test. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, okay, so you you write a lot of really cool and interesting and, go- and good stuff about um, failure states and distributed systems. Uh, you also talk a bunch about BDSM. And it occurs to me that they have maybe, other than the there's masochism everywhere, uh, they have something in common, which is this idea of, like, consent between people. And then the idea that you need say, to be write-safe or to have the idea of, like, acting in your distributed system. And there's something that I've been noodling with. I'm doing a talk at the end of September um, at operability.io in London about distributed systems and teams and, you know, like, where exactly does partition tolerance fall when it comes to people interacting? And so I'm just kind of basically interested in coming up with uh, the Kyle Kingsbury approach to when people are interacting and systems are interacting, How are those things the same how are those things different especially when they need that kind of handshaking like in something as important as consent
3: you know this is an interesting question right because consent is not binary um like oftentimes when you talk about an algorithm like raft uh or paxos you have a very strict orderly progression the things are proven to be correct um i think when you're dealing with people there are more subtle questions about gradations of trust about different contexts Yes, let's do an impact play scene. I consent to this. I, I, will, I trust you. Let's try it. They're physically OK, but as you as you hit them and you're not doing that hard, they're not showing any signs until suddenly they have some sort of psychological break. And it turns out that they did not remember to think about an abusive relationship in the past and that this was, this was a danger for them. And suddenly now you have this more complicated discussion, which can be cathartic, but also uh, difficult work I have no idea how that actually relates to a, a more formal uh, notion of acting. In latency terms, I mean, there's, there's always something about the closeness of a loop. When you're dealing with a team, right, the closer you are to the people, the more quickly you could talk back and forth, the easier it is to build empathy. I think distributed systems, too, once you get to longer and longer characteristic timescales, in order to achieve safety or certainty, you get these sort of characteristic phase shifts, once the boundaries, like how long a user is willing to wait. Um, there might be some sort of phase transition there. But I think these are probably fuzzy analogies at best.
2: I like that, though, because I think it's, and this is one of the things that I really appreciate about the fact that you put everything out there, is that you're reminding everyone that, hey, we are complicated people, and we're dealing with complicated systems, and those two things are not that dissimilar. Like There's a lot of layers, a lot of complexity there, and it's important to recognize that, you know, being distributed systems researcher, you know, gay in the leather scene, this is, this is not something that you can decouple and just say, I'm only gonna pay attention to these parts of Kyle. Like, nope, you get Kyle. This is what you get.
3: I mean, <laughs> photography I is definitely that. But, uh, you know, I think AFRA.com at this point has become, irre- like it was a personal site and uh, an artistic expression for me about photography. Now it's pretty much limited to distributed systems research. And I've I've actually moved the personal writing off site onto Tumblr um, because a number of reasons. I wanted it to be an academic resource that's available for students. I think in those contexts, it's more difficult for them to deal with the integration of a whole persona. Um, On Twitter, you're interacting with a person, not necessarily a topic. And so there's that notion of like, Projecting yourself into a into a certain subspace of your personality doesn't apply as much.
0: Yeah, I I think I would agree. I think that it's not disingenuous or anything like that to to focus different different areas that way. Not necessarily because you're not you're not hiding anything, right? But it's about just the hey, okay, you know, I, if like like Bridget said, you, the whole package. We're all a, a whole person. But that being said, you may only be interested in part of me, and that's okay. Right, you know, yeah. and and you don't need to know all the parts of me to be interested in that thing that you care about, but you can't you can't decouple from the fact that that's who I am. but mm-hmm. you know if I want to learn about distributed systems, that's maybe the only thing I care about, and I want a focus place to to read about that, maybe, you know, or vice versa, right? Someone who's interested in photography probably doesn't care about this other time, you know, I actually. Have the exact counter effect where I, you know when I was when I was blogging much more personally and I would intersperse a lot more technical stuff, my the people who are interested in the personal stuff would say i don't I don't care about this, you know oh, yeah. I don't care about devops. I don't care about technology operations and so I think filtering I don't even want to call it filtering. it's more like focusing
3: mm-hmm.
0: we're routing it if we're going to keep this kind of system analogy
3: and it's funny, there's a lot of my leather friends who follow me and are like, i I have No idea what the computer stuff is. Could you dial it back back please for a minute? Um, so it's kind of <laughs> a fun balance there. But on the on the flip side, I think there's there's something that I am very conscious of in my technical writing, which is you know uh, I have I certainly have interests that don't make it into technical stuff. So I don't talk about my video games or guitar or anything else like in in my writing for Jepsen. But I'm really cognizant of sort of basic issues about inclusion and human rights. Or does it try to be? So in the talk slides, I want to make sure that I have people of various genders, different presentations, uh, different skin tones, um, different abilities, uh, and dress, and all that. Like, Ideally, I go beyond stick figure to giving a more specific and richly detailed picture of a field in an effort to make it easier to be what you see. In Jepson, like, if you if you read, you'll notice there's cases where like I talk about a database visibility anomaly. And it's because somebody changed their name from, you know, uh, Charles to Josephine, and it's like, oh, you know, what you would be posing this trans person's dead name to them, um, and that database anomaly could have emotional consequences. It's a really quiet thing, but I also want to make sure that the, if you're reading along, you get that little snippet where you seem like, oh yeah, that's that's like me. I don't know. It's something that I was always looking for as a as a person. You're always kind of like scanning for that subtext, and I want to try and give those hooks for everybody.
2: Yeah, no, I I think that that's great, and like the stuff that you've done with like the pop culture framing as well. I've noticed that you definitely draw from a variety of sources with a variety of you know artists of different backgrounds and you know demographic ticky boxes and what have you. When you feel like you're uh representing your general like you know your technical self, but also what you consider to be the self that you're presenting to the interwebs or whatever, are there specific things that you try to make sure that you put out there about yourself just so that people understand you as fully as you want them to?
3: I mean, Twitter is pretty much me, although there's a lot of jokes that are like, there's a lot of subtext and and people will take me way too seriously at times. Uh, There's always followers who are like, no, that's wrong. Like, okay, this is, this is a joke. It's an in thing. I'm talking to some (laughs) friends.
2: You're always married to various women.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. My follower bio right now is like, Husband, father, Christian. And I started talking to this researcher about socioeconomic uh, stuff and uh, and kink uh, research, and I was like, "Oh yeah, by the way, I should mention I'm actually not straight and married to this person. For purposes of this discussion, I'm actually a gay letter man in San Francisco."
2: When you like see yourself, you know, continuing, you have you know projects you're going to continue to work on for Stripe, stuff you're going to continue working on for Jepson, but I'm going to ask you kind of the interviewee question of where do you see yourself going with all of this stuff? When you're visualizing future Kyle, and future Kyle is some amount of time down the road, like what do you want to be doing? What are all the exciting hopes and dreams of future Kyle?
3: This is exactly where I want to be. You know, I was really hoping that I could either launch a nonprofit and get funding from DB companies to do this kind of analysis full time, but then I would have to run all the logistical stuff myself, which is awful. Um, I'm terrible with paperwork. So it's wonderful that a company has stepped up and said, hey, we consider this important. And to be able to do the Stripe, it's just—it's really satisfying. Uh, I want to stay here as long as I can. Hopefully, if that ever ends, I'll find somebody else to help me do this kind of research. Ultimately, I'm sure I'll get bored with doing this sort of thing, or it will become enough of a, a well-known problem that I can either specialize in a subfield or move on to some other thing. Might do more work on Riemann. Um, I've got some theoretical designs, but since I'm not doing monitoring in my day-to-day job, my pressure to improve it is not as great. You know, most of what I'm focusing on now is, is correctness. I think it'd be fun to do language design. I've never written a compiler. Um, that might be kind of fun to learn about.
2: <laughs> I've never written a compiler. You and like a- most <laughs> of us, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I've
3: like I I, never got those like core CS experiences, and I kind of want to go and, and learn some. You should write a language called Kyle. Hmm. It's I have a design fun. for one called uh, Subscript, which is going to be uh, a BDSM... Contract language where you have a negotiation with type system and the type system strictly enforces your compliance during the scene <laughs> um, So like instead of let bindings you have beg for variables uh, And there has to be like the right, you know, like um, capitalization Types versus bars. It, it's it's a thing. but I haven't written the compiler for it.
2: So. Okay, that's hilarious um, we're, We are we are getting to the point where we have to wrap up. This is this is very entertaining to me so <laughs> Um there we have all sorts this of this
0: may be um, the most indulgent episode of Rust and DevOps for at least for Bridget so far. Oh
2: so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was like we should have Kyle on you're like, okay. I'm like, I want to talk to Kyle on the podcast. It'll be awesome. All right. So this is the part
0: when I remind you that there are people who are actually assigned by their manager to listen to this show and they talk about uh-huh. it in their team meetings. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we call this querying the discourse, by the way. Yeah.
2: <laughs> wait, wait, wait. No one told me that people listening to us was their like homework. something. Have
0: I not told you that? Uh,
2: no. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah, I totally. Did. Like oh swear. yeah. It's kind of awesome. It kind of freaks me out. I think I didn't tell you wow. that. On-
2: <laughs> you didn't tell me that on purpose, because you knew that I was like, uh, about being the responsible yeah. adult in the room. Okay.
3: Yep. This is fucking cool. So, <laughs> not responsible, Bridget. Somebody has to be. <laughs> That's right.
2: Okay, so on that note, we have all sorts of upcoming conferences. There's open CFPs. Um, there's a number of open CFPs right now, calls for participation, yep. on DevOpsDays.org. Uh, uh, if you If you would like to um, speak at a DevOps Days in the U.S., in Europe, in Asia, in the Middle East, there's a variety of choices. So take a look.
0: Yeah, theoretically, we are a media sponsor of Ohio, but we haven't figured it out. So by the time we have the next recording, we'll probably have a discount code for you for DevOps Days Ohio, which is towards the end of November. So there's that. We do have a discount code for Chicago, but by the time you hear this, it's probably too late. But if you do, it's 8010 for 10% off. For rest uh, for rest of DevOps listeners to so DevOps Days Chicago. So the Chef Community Summit's October fourteenth and fifteenth in Seattle. Uh, if you go to chef.io/slash summit, I realized today that I forgot to ask Nathan for a discount code for listeners, but I'll try to figure out if we can wrangle one, and we'll try to put that up uh, for next episode. Um, I'm going to be there. I just see in the Google Doc that Trevor just said he's going to be there. I did one way or another. I'm going to be there. The boss Community Summit, so she won't be there. Uh, <laughs>
2: I will definitely not be there because I'm pretty sure that's the same week as Velocity, New York. So where I'm going to be, because
0: I... Mike Fiedler is going to kill us.
2: Yeah, This is probably. another
0: thing you can't come to.
2: <laughs> probably. So where I'm going to be, since I've joined Pivotal, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be at VMworld, which should be interesting. And uh, that's the first week in September in San Francisco. So maybe, maybe I'll try to run into Kyle. Um, who I did get to meet in person briefly at Monodorama. I think we walked to the food trucks or something, didn't we, Kyle?
3: Oh, uh, we talked for quite a while in the lobby.
2: Well, yeah, and, and we were chatting in the lobby, which was delightful. That was cool. Yes, I remember now. We talked about fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. Yeah, yeah, I will not be. I will not be speaking at VMworld. Um, I will be speaking at uh, various and sundry conferences in September and October.
0: Yeah, I've got a bunch coming up. I'm going to be at Cloud Develop um, in Columbus which is i think october 14th but don't hold me to that but
2: wait you isn't can find that it the same online. time as community summit no
0: you know? that that can't be right so it's it's before that it's the the friday <laughs> before so it's like maybe it's the 8th or 9th um
2: are you having conference brain Matt? aren't you at a conference like right now i just now? go
0: where tripit tells me to go
2: but are you like <laughs> literally at a conference as you're i am
0: i'm at at that conference which is in the wisconsin dells and i got to tell you y'all should come to this thing. It's really, its they call it summer camp for geeks. It's like at a water park. It's bizarrely cool. And the it, I don't know how many people are here. There's got to be six or 700, I would say. Um, I could be wrong, but it seems like an awful lot. And I'm bummed because I'm going to have to leave tomorrow. I'm not going to be here all week because I'm going to go see a customer and do my real job. But i this was super cool. Yeah, I'm speaking tomorrow, but I would definitely come back and would recommend... People check it out. It's a very different conference. Um, Very much, and there's there's like kid tracks, so people are here with their families, and they have, you know, they did, gave talks. They had sessions today for kids about like programming helicopters and all sorts of crazy stuff. It was pretty cool. Um, And, yeah, also I'll be at DevOps Day Chicago, which is August 25th and 26th. Uh, I can never say that right, 26th. I'm not speaking, I'm organizing, so I'll be running around like crazy, but... uh,
1: I'll I be, be there speaking. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Contributing to open source as a lightning talk. Nice. It's going to be fun.
2: So, so Kyle, if people want to see you in action speaking or I don't know, stalk you while you're uh lifting or whatever, like where can people run into you in the next month or two? <laughs>
3: Well, if you want to come and lift at uh, SF Fitness Soma, you're welcome to join me for squats. The uh, the next conference I'm speaking at is going to be Berlin, uh, and that's, I think, like September 19th at Distributed Matters. That should be a lot of fun. I've been to Berlin, and then I'm speaking at uh, High Performance Transactional Systems um, at NASA Lamar, and that's right after. I think it's all I've got for the rest of the year. I was so burned out after conference season in spring that I'm trying to keep it a little bit easy. I'll pick up next year.
2: Is this your first visit to Berlin?
3: First time in Germany, yeah.
2: Oh, my sister's, uh, my sister's husband has a brother who lives in Berlin with his husband, who I should totally introduce you to. Maybe they oh, cool. can tell you things about Berlin. Nice. I have, I have no idea if they would, you know, be doing any of the same exciting things in Berlin that you are into, but you know, they could at least possibly say, "This is good. This is not."
3: Yeah, here there's there's actually an abandoned airfield, which they've converted to a giant art installation of some kind. I don't want to go see that.
0: So what do you have, uh, Kyle? Do you have a a checkout for for our uh, listeners?
3: I do. uh, I want to recommend that folks who like uh, oceans and video games uh, go take a look at Subnautica, which is um, developed by a a local game shop here in uh, San Francisco called Unknown Worlds. Um, And it's your spaceship crash lands on this ocean world, and you're the only survivor in your little life pod, and you swim around this beautiful ocean with all these different reefs and uh, creatures and um, find raw materials and build little bases and submarines and go exploring. That's oh. a, a wonderful kind of non-violent, non-directed exploration game.
2: Nice, okay. Um, so I have a couple of checkouts. One is this uh, Netflix show called, or a show that's on Netflix anyway. I'm not sure if Netflix made it or what, but it's, uh, it's called Sense8. And Kyle is one of the people who I saw tweeting about this. Like Kyle and Camille, and um, my uh, friend, former boss Tim Gross, and a couple of other people. All just kept saying, "You have to watch this." And so I started watching it, and I like it quite a bit. The it's. It's got a very strange McGGuffiny premise of you know all people all like sharing each other's uh, sensations kind of bleeding over and they just experience something that's not happening where they are it's where the other people who are psychically linked to them are but what I like about it is that it has a wide array of humanity um, and it's unremarked upon that these are not necessarily you know like all white males has had like people you always see on TV which is just really refreshing and I like it quite a bit. And uh, then the other thing is, like, I wasn't going to have a second checkout, but since Stratton really wants everyone to learn about Bosch, I'm going to put a link to um, a Bosch tutorial. Because, well, I have to go through this Bosch tutorial. I was going like to
3: say right? I know
2: during my fun employment week, like my homework is <laughs> to go through this Bosch tutorial, so I have some idea what I'm looking at when I'm, you know, training with the uh, ops team at Pivotal. So, because I'm not going to be doing ops, but I'm, like, I'm actually, I'm literally reporting to Andrew Clay Schaefer in the marketing department, which is, whoa, way different, but I'm still going to spend, yes, exactly, heads explode, but I'm still going to be, like, you know, get my hands in the tech and uh, really understand it, so I'm going to do a rotation or two with the ops team for the the hosted Cloud Foundry stuff.
0: All right, Mr. Hess. All right,
1: so I just wanted to talk about the Alphabet announcement that was For those who who haven't found it by the time that they're listening to this, Google has now uh, subsidiary themselves to a parent company called Alphabet. Um, And what was kind of interesting and creepy, in my opinion, was Google pointed, as an Easter egg in in their announcement, pointed themselves towards the Hooli XYZ site from Silicon Valley, Hooli being the evil Google in the Silicon Valley universe. I, I like um,
0: as, as Julian Dunn said today. He said, "You know, in other news, Facebook will rename themselves to Fixnum." So, <laughs> uh,
1: for my next checkout, uh, while Jen and I were in Niagara Falls, um, because we had missed it um, the week before, in Chicago, we watched the uh, the premiere of Dragon Ball Z Resurrection F. Uh, which was the return of Frieza for anybody who is into Dragon Ball Z. and it was actually it was a really fantastic movie. It was a lot of fun. Um, and then finally, uh, on the way between on the way from Niagara to my grandmother's house, we stopped in Herkimer, New York, which has these has a, a unique quartz formation that they call Herkimer diamonds. they're They're dual terminated quartz crystals, uh, which means they have points on both ends instead of only one end. And they form in these little pockets inside the rocks. And you actually can go bust them out of the rocks. And you're not supposed to bust them out of the rocks. So the goal is actually to get them to, you're supposed to break them enough such that you can see into a pocket and actually see the crystal fo- floating around inside. That's like the desired state for these crystals. But you can actually pop them out too. And they're these really cool little, like crystal clear, dual terminated quartz crystals. Unfortunately, they're in the car, so I have a picture of them um, in the in the show notes. But it was fun.
0: Matt, awesome. So I got two things. So as I alluded to, I mentioned earlier in the show. So I recently got an Amazon Echo. It's ridiculous. It's super indulgent. Um, I mostly use it to find out what time it is in the middle of the night, so I can call <laughs> that out. And as, as my coworker Sean said, he said, "What you don't just go over <laughs> and look at the Apple Watch?" And I'm like, I said, "Well, I have to put my glasses on to read my watch." So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Wait, that it's not one. charging.
0: It is charging. I can still look at it. <laughs> and I also uh, got the uh and, b- and finished just finished the build of the uh, Avengers Helicarrier Lego set. It is also ridiculous, but was super fun. It probably was about I'd say about a fifteen hour build. Um, How heavy is it? It's not that heavy. It's like maybe I don't know, maybe five pounds. It feels like That's not maybe bad. at the most. No, but I thought it was cool. There's an awful lot of detail on it that you don't even see, like that you experience just by the build, and then it's all covered up. So it was super fun. And as as uh, one of my friends said, she said, you have to let your children play with that Lord business. And I said, the box says 16 and up. And I, you know, rules are rules. So, you know, I bought some other Avengers younger sets for my kids to play with. Um, and they can admire the Helicarrier from a distance. So, until they're 16. Until they're 16. <laughs> uh, so we have a newsletter. It's at ArrestedDevOps.com slash BananaStand. It is the best way to know about upcoming podcast episodes and cool news with DevOps. We also have an iPhone app if you're into that kind of thing, which you can download for free at ArrestedDevOps.com slash iPhone.
1: Thanks again to our sponsors. Be sure to visit them at ArrestedDevOps.com slash TenthMagnitude and ArrestedDevOps.com slash PagerDuty. Thanks again, Kyle, for joining us. And to our loyal listeners, if you enjoy... Arrested DevOps. We would appreciate it if you would visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash iTunes and leave us a review in the iTunes store. We'll read them on the air as demonstrated today and you'll be internet famous, which is on- second only to real famous. We would, love to- we would love to know what you thought of this episode. Please leave us comments at ArrestedDevOps.com slash 41.
0: That thing about internet famous comes from that silly trailer for the new gem movie which is ridiculous it is i swear to god the thing makes me almost cry every time i see it and since i have kids and go see silly little kids movies actually awesome i saw sean the sheep this weekend there's I, I swear i get so angry because the trailer is so silly and i like get all teared up and it's annoying so
2: i think that's wonderful wait is this new gem movie like gem is truly outrageous gem
0: yes it's like gem in the holograms but like it's apparently oh, wow. not accurate.
2: Is it but live action? Or- it's
0: live action. It's live action. Yeah. And it's, but the reason it like makes me get teared up is it's like her dad like passes away and like, she's getting messages for, that he recorded before. And it's like all this things that happen when, you know, you have like a little girl or like any little girl or any little kid.
2: So there's, there well, and there's, there's obviously tropes in there that fit really well with Jepsen too. So Kyle, there we go. Check out, this, check out some <laughs> new material there. <laughs> All right. So uh, be sure to check us out at ArrestedDevOps.com or at ArrestedDevOps on Twitter. We're always happy to get your input, ideas, or feedback at shows at ArrestedDevOps.com. Uh, please let us know any ideas you have for future episodes, especially if they require Kyle to come back, because why not?
0: <laughs> and, and we promise we do get the email. We we actually had someone email us about an episode a few days ago, and was Tweety was like, um, fellas, and non-fellows and people and stuff like what about this we're like yeah we'll get back to you sorry <laughs> um, so we're super um, embarrassed about that anyway.
2: yeah I, um but anyway so i'm bridget at bridget Crumhout.
0: i'm matt at matt stratton and i'm trevor at
1: trevor g hess
2: we're arrested devops and remember
1: there's always devops in the banana stand